Hello, and welcome or welcome back to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr Rosie Anderson, and every Thursday this summer, I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. This episode is the second in a double bill that looks at how medical research has transformed the health, well-being and dignity of millions of people around the world. Now, lots of university research comes from trying to solve a particular real-life problem. The thing is, what seems like a tidy problem often turns out to be connected to all sorts of other problems. Solve it and you start changing the world around it. This episode, I'm talking with Professor Jayant Vedja of the Division of Surgery at UCL whose innovative radiotherapy device called Target has revolutionised the way we treat breast cancer. Traditional treatment is surgery to remove the cancer, followed by weeks or months of emotionally and physically draining radio or chemotherapy. This exposes the patients to new dangers, flooding their bodies with toxic chemicals or radiation. And as a young surgeon in India, Giant saw how devastating or even impossible the constant trips to hospital were for the women he treated. I sat down with Giant and his colleagues Samuele Masarut of the CRO in Aviano, Italy, and Sandeep Nayak, Director of Surgical Oncology at Fortis Hospital, Bangalore, to tell me the story of how a young surgeon in Mumbai set out to make a radiotherapy device that would make his patients' lives a little easier, and wound up discovering new things about how the body heals, transforming breast cancer surgery, and taking on the economics of healthcare around the world. I also spoke with Marcel, who was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2012 and treated using Target. And it's her story we'll start with. Hello, my name is Marcel Bernstein. I'm a journalist and an author and I lecture at City University. And almost 10 years ago now, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And... I had a most interesting experience and I'd like to share it with you. I'd had a, a, a mammogram, a routine one. I think it come to an end, I was at that point, I was 68. I had no breast pain, I'd had no, no problems, I'd had no hints, no lumps, no bumps, nothing. So I just expected the usual letter. You know, Dear Mrs. Clark, please don't worry, well, you're fine. Instead, I got a telephone call from a hospital, a major London teaching hospital, asking me to go in for an urgent biopsy. So I knew I was in trouble. The stories that were going through my head are not stories anybody would want. 15 years or so before that, my mother had died of breast cancer. So I knew all too much about it. Back in those days, nobody talked about it. My mother, least of all. You didn't discuss these things. I mean, thank God now it, it's so much more open. But I remember very vividly that what happened with my mother when she knew that she had breast cancer, from all the things like the inverted nipple, things like that, she wasn't mm. a fool. She hid it from herself. And she would get up every morning and say to it very sternly, no, no. And she behaved in general like an old Jewish woman in a shtetl somewhere in Russia who had no options. We watched her die. And I was determined that if ever anything like that happened to me, because I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, and therefore you worry about the genetic side of it, mm. I would treat it very differently. So I think from the off, I had a very um, positive attitude. There were things I could do, and I was damn well going to do them. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 
And Giant, um, I just want to start by talking about how you came to want to work around radiotherapy and breast cancer specifically. And where did this journey start for you? Well, it started uh, more than more than 20 years ago when I was uh, a chief resident and then surgical and research fellow in Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai. Uh, at that time, patients used to come from all over India for treatment of cancer to this uh, premier cancer institute. And as residents, we would have to give them the diagnosis and then plan their treatments and then do the operations. Mm-hmm. So for breast cancer, we would the it was well established that mastectomy and breast conservation are similar in outcome, and patients would prefer uh, breast conservation surgery. But that comes as a package. That means if we do a lumpectomy or a wide local excision and preserve the breast, it would need to be followed up by radiotherapy, and traditionally radiotherapy is given as a course of six weeks, five to six weeks, or three to six weeks now. Um, And this is done through daily treatments where the individual daily dose is small enough for the breast to tolerate Mm. and and enough to kill cancer on a regular basis from Monday to Friday for three to six weeks. And these patients from, from all over India would have to come and stay in Mumbai for those six weeks in order to take the radiotherapy Mm. And unless they agreed to t- do that, we wouldn't be able to conserve the breast because in that case, without the radiotherapy, it would be inadequate treatment. Mm. So it was not nice for me to tell this lady who is now facing the diagnosis of breast cancer, mm-hmm. can you stay in Bombay for six weeks after the operation mm. or two months? And if she can't, we would have to save you to do a mastectomy. And this was happening in every case. So that was the situation in the clinic. I just want to bring in Samuele and also Sandeep and ask them, um, does that tally with your experience as well as clinicians, as practitioners? Um, were you seeing similar patterns in, you know, in Italy, in your own practice in India? There, is a, there was a segment of uh, you know, those patients who wouldn't want to come so often to hospital, especially the older age group, some, you know, people above 70 Though they would want to save their breast, but they wouldn't want to come so often every day for three weeks to six weeks. Uh, uh, in Italy, there are plenty of centers of radiation therapy centers. So it's not, it's, it's, distance is not an issue. But uh, nevertheless, you know, six weeks uh, every day, uh, maybe you have children or. Uh, uh, you know, you have to go to work and it's, it's difficult uh, to go to a, to a radiation therapy center for an hour or two, even though the treatment lasts two minutes, uh, more or less. But you have to drive there and then wait uh, your t- <laughs> Yeah, so it's not, it, it was not so easy. The other places which have had problems and faced a situation similar to what I faced, was in Australia, where patients came back from outbacks, where they wanted to go back. It happens in in Denmark, where uh, people don't want to leave their island. It's the several hundred islands. They want to stay in the island. They want to come to the Copenhagen and have a treatment. They would rather have a mastectomy. It happens in places in the UK, because there are many places away from the centers. And even in UCS in San Francisco, where 
If they are on this side of the Bay Bridge, they're happy to have a radiotherapy. But if they, if they are treated in county hospital on the other side of the Bay Bridge, they can't. They don't want to cross the Bay Bridge every day for six weeks because they lose their jobs. They dig a whole day. And simultaneously, I was working to see why are we doing. The question was in my mind: Why are we doing this? Why are we treating the whole breast when we can do a lumpectomy? We have moved from a radical mastectomy to a lumpectomy. Why are we still treating the whole breast? And answer to that appeared to be because the dogma was that there are multiple other cancers in the breast. So I did a laboratory study. I found that two thirds of these patients had other cancers which were previously unidentified in their breasts. And we would have thought we could do a lumpectomy in them. And I, the new thing we did was we plotted these in three dimensions in each breast. And I found that these other cancers are spread all over the breast. But we knew from long term outcomes of patients who had lumpectomy, with or without radiotherapy, whenever they get a recurrence, it would happen around the tumor. These other cancers which are sitting there are biologically not the same as the main tumor and do not grow in real life. So this was in 1995, presented this in Hong Kong and published it in British Journal of Cancer. Well, although I'm saying uh, I was positive about it, I, of course I was terrified because maybe it's a death sentence. You absolutely don't know at that stage. So the first thing that happened was I went to a consultation with a man who I later learned later was a locum breast surgeon. And it was not a good interview from the start because he sat, the body language was bad, he sat half turned away from me so that I got a view of him looking at me over his shoulder, which you can probably imagine was him being negative about me? I don't know. Mm. Um, he told me the important things. He told me about the size. He told me it was grade one. He told me that I would have to have surgery. I took my husband with me because the one thing you should always do is take someone with you to a meeting like this. Mm. And we also asked him if it was okay if we recorded it. So he knew we were recording this, this, this discussion. And one of the first things he said to me when he heard my origins was, you should have a mastectomy. He said it right at the beginning, right off. He then, as we talked on, said, maybe I should have a double mastectomy. And this was my first meeting, my first discussion about this. And there was a marvellous breast care nurse with us sitting opposite me. And I could see the look of horror on her face. This was before, I should say, that I had had any kind of genetic counselling. So we really, we were floating in waters that neither the breast surgeon nor I knew anything about. Mm. But as I left, he called after me, can I book you in for the big one? So my husband and I walked out and we looked at each other and we said, oh my God, we need a second opinion. I'd, I'd actually said to the locum breast surgeon, which was probably a mistake, I said, look, I love, my, I love my breasts, but I love life more. So if I have to have a double mastectomy, then I have to. Nevertheless, it would, have been, it would have been a horrendous thing to face, even at the end of my sexual life, really, because as I say, I was approaching 70. Uh, it, it would have been a horrendous thing, both for me and my husband. It, it, it's an amputation, it's a loss. I, I do believe I do believe in treating your body gently, and this is, must be the harshest thing to do. I remember talking to an elderly breast care nurse, and she said that she could remember treating women who'd had 
massive, what they called heroic surgery, when an enormous amount of muscle was taken as well. And she said she could remember that women were unable to move their arms virtually after having um, mastectomies. So it's, people have been treated very brutally, women have been treated very brutally by the medical profession in terms of breast care for, for, for decades. Do you think the fact that these are breasts and these are women was an element in that as well, that, that, that brutality, that maiming? Rosie, I think, that is, I think you've actually put your finger on it, and I do believe that, but it's not something I say very often because it's, it, it sounds sexist. I, if men had had breasts, they would not have been treated this, this way. If we were talking about men's testicles, they would be treated very differently. It's, I think there is a feeling, don't you, that breasts are a sort of... Um, People look at them, they look at your breasts, they maybe enjoy them. It's a sort of slightly, it's a paternalistic attitude. We, and at that time, we were a much more paternalistic society. You're you looked at as an object. Mm. And the other thing, of course, is that if you have uh, entire breast uh, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, whatever you have, you need, you have to remember that even with radiotherapy, which is the milder, form it's still brutal for the body years afterwards your heart can be affected lungs can be affected um, uh, it, it it does affect the organs that it touches if you have delicate skin if perhaps you're a redhead it, radiotherapy is, is punitive to your skin mm. uh, you can get hardening of the breast now none of these things matter if you're treating major breast cancer you, then they are the risks that go with the benefits of the treatment. But if you don't have to have them, if they can be avoided, then avoid them and target, to a large degree, avoids all those. I met Professor Michael Baum and Professor Tobias when I came to London the first time mm. and said, well, actually, you know, this is a paradoxical situation. We have this multicentric foci, but we should treat only the area around the tumor yeah. with radiotherapy. And just serendipitously, I was there at the right time at the right place, they were talking to this uh, photoelectron corporation who had acquired this device where they wanted to see how they can use it. And it yeah. wasn't being, nothing was done. So we developed um, applicators for it to be used in the breast mm -hmm. and said, okay, with this device, not only will we give it only around a tumor, but we will do it during the operation itself. Mm. So we do it at the right place without any delay, without missing a target. The next step, after we knew it was safe to do, we were worried about wound infections, but it didn't have a problem. Uh, apart from our third patient, we knew exactly how to do it by the end of that time. Okay, let us do a randomized trial. And we uh, published a protocol in the Lancet to say we want to randomize patients, randomly allocate to receive just this treatment in the operation theater or usual six weeks, five to six weeks of whole breast radiotherapy. Mm. That's what started in 2000. It was lucky or fortunate that we were able to do a randomized clinical trial which is the highest mm. level of evidence in which so many people from around the world participated so it is more generalizable and the bonus really and the bonus is actually even better than what we started out for we started out for a better convenient treatment more convenient treatment which might be less toxic but what we found was there are fewer deaths giving this treatment means we avoid overtreatment and uh, toxicity of radiotherapy, which is unavoidable, 
um, with even with the best techniques. So we have found yes. that there is a fewer deaths from other causes, which leads to improvement in overall survival, which is not dissimilar from what one gets with a treatment such as Herceptin, which goes on for yeah. a year and very yeah. expensive. Because, as I said, I knew about my mother mm. after her death, I became much more aware of things we could have done but didn't know to do. Which, as the guilt is bad, but what can you do? Mm. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. And I had been, of course, I read the papers. I'm a journalist. And I was very aware of uh, Professor Michael Baum, who is a leading breast care uh, surgeon and oncologist in this country. And he was writing a lot at that time. He was, he was a pioneer of lumpectomies and radiotherapy. And I'd been reading what he said, and I'd always said to myself, if this happened to me, go to Michael Baum. So I emailed him. I was, I, I was told that he had retired now, or semi-retired, but I emailed him anyway. A few hours later, I got a phone call from an associate of his, uh, Mr. Jayant Vajja, mm -hmm. who subsequently became my breast surgeon. So he phoned me just within hours. Going through something like a cancer diagnosis and then um, treatment, therapy, you know, there's the, the uh, immediate diagnosis of that disease or, or, or some, something specific which is, is going on in your body. But then there's a whole life around that body, isn't there? Um, mm. There's an experience of being a patient. Um, and family. And family, indeed. There's a whole family mm. around that person. Mm. So Caregiver uh, is very often the one who's earning for the family mm. or has some other responsibility as well. Mm. So when, they, uh, when this patient has to come, the caregiver's uh, you know, daily routine gets disrupted. Mm. So often an elderly patient would be more concerned about that rather than, you know, uh, saving her own breast. And I think this would be a good option if they want to save their breast. I see that happening today in my practice, though we are just we have done about, uh, I think, six to seven cases so far. Hearing that gives me goosebumps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mr. Vedia told me about target i went to see him so i wasn't part of the trial they had a 12-year trial for for target and it was just coming to an end so they didn't need any more people so i i got it through private health care but of course now brilliantly it's available on the national health when i knew from giant that i was not going to have to have anything like a mastectomy, that in fact it was going to be a lumpectomy, that it was going to be a small incision. It was a one-day treatment, which of course what makes Target so marvellous, especially in these days of COVID and anxiety mm. and cutbacks, you're in and out. You're not going there day after day for radiotherapy, which takes a few minutes, but you have to get there, you have to wait, you have to have the, the treatment, you have to come out, you have to get back. So so car miles, waiting time, travel expenses, there is none of that. So I would love at this point to ask you a question that I may regret, uh, okay. which is to try and explain how exactly, <laughs> how exactly this works. <laughs> First of all, what does Target stand for? Um, ah, let's start with that. So, so, so that is a favourite question of mine, because I coined the word. <laughs> So while coming back home in a train. So Target 
uh, is targeted intraoperative radiotherapy. And it's a sort of targeting the cancer. So that's why I called it target. Mm -hmm. And that sort of stuck. How it works, now that I can answer in two ways. One is what is the physics? Mm -hmm. And second is the radiobiology. Okay, whichever's kindest the, to my brain. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope I can make it make it make it uh, yeah. simple. Okay. Uh, so, the physics is such that uh, in the box, it's like a mini linac, mm -hmm. uh, mini linear accelerator where electrons are generated. They are accelerated along a thin tube, and they hit the tip of this tube, mm -hmm. and the tube is about six centimeters in size, six inches in size. So he explained it all to me, a, a small incision, they insert this, the, the intrabeam, which is a, a, an instrument with a small ball on the end, which is sized to fit the, mm. where they remove the tumor. So it's an exact fit. They put it into your breast, they sew it in. You make applicators, which are like small spheres, Mm -hmm. which go around this tip mm -hmm. and we choose the size of this applicator depending on how big the tumor was. Mm -hmm. So now imagine these electrons, are, when you switch on the machine, mm -hmm. electrons move along this tube, hit the gold and radiate x-rays. There's a little gold center to this, to this sphere. Mm. They, they aim x-ray rays at it. The gold bounces the x-rays back off into the surrounding tumor area. So it only affects that tiny area of your body. Mm. These x-rays are modulated by these spherical applicators so that you get uniform dose of radiation at the surface of this applicator, mm -hmm. which is the tumor bed, which is the site of the highest risk of recurrence. And the dose reduces quickly mm -hmm. as you go further away into the breast and the body. Right. So that beyond a centimeter or two, there is not hardly any dose. So right. by the time it reaches the heart or the lung, mm. it don't have any, any radiation that can be damaging. So it only radiates immediately around the tumor. Mm. And what it does in terms of radiobiology is two things. This dose is high enough to kill any tumor cells that might have been present in the tumor bed. Mm -hmm. In addition, it seems to have an effect on the normal cells around it. Mm -hmm. And this is some work which Dr. Masaruth has, and his uh, Dr. Baldassare, his colleagues have pioneered, uh -huh. in which it seems to be that a phenomena that occurs normally after surgery, after surgery, as per our evolution of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, we didn't have operations when we were bit by a tiger mm. uh, and we survived, that wound healed, right? Mm -hmm. So any wound heals, at the time of healing, our body has learned to create an environment which is fantastic for growing and healing. And this environment is what we create when we do an operation. If there are any cells in the body which are circulating or cells left there, it is a fantastic environment for cancer to grow, multiply and move around. This was studied by looking at the fluid that collects in the wound. And when that fluid is looked at, we find that it does stimulate cancer cells. Right. But if you take away the fluid after someone has had target IOT, it doesn't do that. There is also an effect on the microenvironment of the cancer. In, in the end, it turned out that after, after surgery, it took some time, but I can now not find where the scar is. I can't, there's no mark on my breast at all, apart from the usual 
creases you get at the side of your breast. Mine was sort of under the arm. So it's it's wonderful both from the, the, the physical aspects of, of how it treats you, but also from the mental and emotional aspect. It is tailoring medicine for the individual, which is the future. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It is something that, that your, your specialists will look at you and say, this is what we're going to do for you, this and this and this, and it's as, it's as tight and as controlled as possible. It has yeah. indeed opened doors to uh, investigation on how radiotherapy actually works. So, and this is one of the reasons why people find their foundations of how radiotherapy works a bit shaken because of the data that uh, was mm. produced as part of the target studies. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that um, scientific inquiry is always extremely predictable um, huh. and quite tidy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think this is a really interesting it's... and delightful example of how actually there's lots of serendipity, there's lots of exploration, it's adventurous, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It is that's what gives it the uh, raison d'etre really to do it uh, because despite a lot of opposition, people calling you mad. Uh, <laughs> that's what that, that's yeah. literally what what happened. We were, we were called uh, these mad people, target really? people on the, stage, on the podium. <laughs> why? Why? Why did people think that this was so crazy? Then why was this considered? Oh, well, one of the reasons was. <laughs> Uh, well, let me see what I think, what I say, and then let <laughs> yeah, others please. chip in as well. Yeah, I think it was because the dose which we gave, a physical dose of radiation, is small, and we are going and interfering with an operation, and we could cause harm because it would not heal. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of uh, concerns which people had, uh, which we that's why we did it slowly. We started mm. one by one, one by one, and uh, because the prize, if it worked. The vision was that if it worked, it would make a big difference. Yeah. And it was, uh, we were recruiting for the first four years, very few patients in the trial. Yeah. And then Samuele came in and Australia came in and Germany came in and then it went up. Yeah. Mm. I'm interested, actually, and I'm sure quite a lot of listeners would be, uh, about how important it is to have an international trial. From small beginnings, this became big in fact and um, and yes uh, involving several centers right across the world what we were testing is what would happen in the real world if this was introduced in practice mm -hmm. so the surgeon we didn't have a very prescriptive method of doing an operation mm -hmm. we had to the surgeons would need to conceptually understand this is what we want to give and then it was left to individual surgeons to do the correct operation to give the correct radiation oncologists give the correct treatment mm. and and in the radiation oncologist to decide whether they need more radiotherapy afterwards people have different multidisciplinary teams so it is generalizable every geography plays a different uh, you know a place in a different way that's what i observe when i see various geographies mm. and uh, india is a completely different ball game you know we have exceptionally good technology adoption here but I have not seen, you know, we don't have a single functional interoperative radiotherapy machine in India, except this one, which I am running right now. So technology adoption, when it happens, you know, it has to be spearheaded by somebody. So, you know, every time any new technology comes into medicine, it is always rejected. <laughs> Nobody accepts it. I'm really struck as you talk, Marcel, that you keep using 
the word brutal. You keep using the word brutality. And we've, how we talk about uh, health and bodies and illness and disease frames how we as a society think about it, think what's acceptable, uh, frame those risks even. And and I'm really struck by how, how we keep coming back to this... Um, where you might expect to hear care, yes. you hear brutality in your yes. in your words, and yes. you see it in obits in the papers, don't you? Battling cancer, losing the battle with cancer, struggling against, fighting—they're—they're—they're um, they're, they're more like words. Whereas this is your body, you want it treated gently. And I'm reluctant to go on about it too much because if you need these things, then of course those results are secondary to the important fact that they're curing you. But nonetheless, if you can get away with it, then you should get away with it. And this target is the gentler option, and it's it's kinder to women. It is. I suppose what we're both saying is the way we frame what mm. it means to be ill and what it means to quote-unquote fight it sort of frames what's acceptable as the price that you pay as well. And, the, and even yes. the, the need... You know, even the need to make things kinder won't be as visible, perhaps, if we if we talk about it in those terms. In terms of target, first of all, from Giant, and then I really want to know about you, Samuele, and um, and also Sandeep. But in in your different contexts, what it took to go from having this new in, this new invention, basically, with all of these fascinating and brilliant outcomes out to patients. So if people felt that the patients, uh, clearly patients would love it, and if uh, it's practically possible for me to do it without causing too much disruption to the hospital, then we should do it. This is something that improves quality of life, reduces pain, for patients it's convenient. It is least disruptive of treatments, but in some uh, healthcare situations, it can be the most disruptive to the flow of patients in the radiotherapy department. Mm -hmm. A third of radiotherapy yes. department's patients are breast cancer in the Western world. Yes. So if somebody sits back and thinks, oh, this looks nice and beautiful, but a third of our patients will never come to us, that yes. can make people stop. And I have never said this before, but it was published by the chief editor of the Red Journal, the top radiotherapy journal, who described it as target can be considered as a quantum leap forward or a significant threat. Wow. So, so this is what Makes he has published. <laughs> uh, he, has, he has published this. And if radiotherapy remuneration to the hospital comes from number of times the patient comes to the hospital, uh, every time it's 200 pounds, then more number of times they come, better it is. And uh, nobody will pay somebody as much as what it would be if it is done at the same, same time during the operation, if you count it by the actions. If activity-based payments, it doesn't work. But if it is value-based payment, it works. And Sandeep has found a very nice model in his hospital where everybody pays the same, whatever treatment they get. And the whole team gets it, if I say it correctly, uh, if I understood it correctly, then there is no disincentive to give the correct treatment. I thought that would be the case in the NHS, but NHS hospitals have become uh, corporate bodies. So mm. it's tricky. It's just how to make it work in yes. the health systems. See, uh, you know, uh, as doctors, we are not financially and managementally trained very well. So that is our biggest issue. So 
<laughs> that's where i thought you know when i have to see this go through and grow i need to uh, involve every all these uh, stakeholders mm. so the financial model covers the entire team so all payouts go from this team revenue mm. at the same time you know i have to look after the hospital's uh, revenue as well you know i'm working in a private hospital so if it reduces hospital's revenue they would also be bothered mm. it's a patient we are doing it for the benefit of the patient but if yeah. hospital sees it as a loss then they may not uh, promote this particular uh, instrument or equipment yeah so i took a decision that you know if if it has to succeed then the the hospital's financial gain should be almost parallel to what it would earn when it is uh, you know involved in ebrt external mm-hmm. beam radiotherapy mm-hmm. so that's what i have done i uh, the packages actually run parallel the financially it is almost the same whether the patient gets an ebrt or uh, iort Mm-hmm. the uh, the the hospital case is the same at present we need to only think about the patient's benefit that is the only criteria which has to be seen here mm. you know giant is all, already mentioned in the nhs you know uh, which is yeah. obviously a public health system you know it's still very much by activity it's it and, yes. and to think about it as benefit is quite a mental shift i would have thought it, but it is and i was so pleased to see how sandeep has done this yeah Yeah. It's really interesting. It's something to something to watch and maybe we can learn from <laughs> and replicate. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm now on the steering committee. I'm I'm really excited about this for target for much younger women. Up to now that 12 year trial that, that was taking place was for older women. Mm. Now we're trialing it for much younger women and you can you can absolutely argue that for much younger women it is much more important if you've got children small children a career uh, a busy home life um, possibly older parents to look after look what women do undertake then for you to be treated quickly and easily is a boon beyond measure target b is for those patients who would not have been otherwise eligible so now we know that for 45 years and older if it's invasive ductal carcinoma uh up to 3 and 1/2 cm they can have target a as standard of care but if they have got lobular cancers more than one cancer if they have received neoadjuvant chemotherapy before the operation and if they are under 45 they would not have participated in target a trial mm-hmm. so we don't know whether it works for them or not we also found out in a separate study uh, that when you give target iort plus external beam it seems to have a lower local recurrence rate so we started the target b trial back in 2013 mm. and it has recruited now nearly 1800 patients is 2000 patients we want to recruit about so 200 more to left half the patients would get it during the operation half would get it post operatively but most of these patients would get chemotherapy as well we have not it, yet seen the last chapter in the target no, <laughs> the target story yet. then <laughs> yes yes yeah. Well, I wish you all the very very best with everything that you're you're doing. Um and thank you so much for talking to me today. It, thank it's you. been a real pleasure. Thank it's you. been so thank interesting. You. Thank you very much. I thank must you. not forget to uh, acknowledge all the um investigators and patients and their teams. Uh yeah. with the, the the writing committee being uh, 
um, with, along with me, Professor Michael Baum, Professor Jeffrey Tobias and Professor Max Balsara. That's all for now. I hope to see you next time, where I will be talking to Professor Elizabeth Shepherd and John George Nicholson about how young people in care can have a voice in the records that are made about their childhood. If you can't wait until then and want to hear more about the impact of UCL's research on society and the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I want to thank Giant, Samuele and Sandeep, our guests, and of course you, our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.